Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. Let's get into it. I live in the state of Virginia in the United States, and I'm also an author and an animal activist. So what were you like as a child? I was a child who wanted nothing more than to be a doctor. And one of my first memories is taking my mother's vacuum cleaner and using it to perform a pretend blood transfusion. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm trying to remember if it was a cat or a stuffed animal. I was really young. I don't know. I have memories of wanting to be very, very strongly wanting to be a doctor and loving my cats, but not thinking I'd ever go into any kind of work that involved animals. I was very lucky because I was raised in a house where we didn't necessarily have a lot of money when I was growing up, but my parents were very careful to give me a beautiful education. I mean, I don't mean just in sending me to school, of course, but having music in the house and books in the house. And an early memory that I also have is one of my first music teachers coming to the house and saying something to my parents about how it, in a really nice way, but the furniture is, is not new and the rug is not new, but you're giving your child music lessons and that's a really good thing. So when did you start studying anthropology? Well, I never took anthropology in high school. I first encountered it in college and I was actually taking pre-med courses, which followed on from my childhood dream of being a doctor, but I really wasn't very engaged and I wasn't doing very well. And I stumbled into an anthropology course when I was in my third year, my junior year, and I never looked back from that point forward. Anthropology is very comprehensive. In the United States, we have four subfields. Uh, One is cultural anthropology, another biological, then linguistic, and then archaeology. And I always wanted to go into the biological anthropology end of things. But in the beginning, I wasn't necessarily focused on helping and compassion. I was wanting to just study these animals, particularly monkeys and apes, and to take data and to translate that data into publications. And I did all that for a long time. It was only much later that I wanted to work for animals as much as I wanted to work on animals. So that was a long personal evolution in my life. And can you tell us about the study that you did on the monkeys in Africa? First of all, to Gabon in West Africa in the early 1980s, and I studied captive chimpanzees there. And that was such an irony. The weekends, I would take trips and try to go see the wildlife, and then I would return and I would study animals in cages. At any rate, I finally had the opportunity to go to East Africa and to study free-ranging baboons. And that was a very big turning point in my life. I was studying how infant baboons learn from adults about what to eat, and that took 14 months. It really changed my life to do fieldwork in that way. But again, it was very much a data-focused study. I wanted to write a book, and I did, and I wanted to write articles, and I did, about how we can understand the learning processes of monkeys. So that was a very early stage in my career. And what was the part that captivated you? I think it was watching how monkeys, in this case, yellow baboons, organize themselves into complicated societies. So these monkeys live in what are called matrilines, which are groups of related females. When a 
infant is born, it's born into a world where there's a mother, an aunt, grandmother, siblings, and it's very warm and affectionate. And you can see that there's a lot of thought and emotion happening in these societies. As the infants grow up, the, the females stay in the groups into which they're born and the males transfer to other groups. So it was a chance to see and not just read about, but to see with my own eyes how animal societies can be a reflection of complexity and a reflection of thought and a reflection of feeling. So I think that was a very important aspect for me. Talk to us a little bit about that amazing TED Talk that you had on animals and grief. So one of the most amazing invitations that came my way in 2019 was to give a talk in Vancouver, Canada on the main stage at the TED conference. And what I chose to talk about was animal love and grief because this really has been the culmination of a lot of the years of my recent work. And I opened up with an anecdote, but it's a scientific anecdote, about uh, an orca or a killer whale called Tahlequah. And Tahlequah became very famous the year before, 2018. She lives with a pod of orcas that hadn't had a live successful birth in three years. So she gave birth to an infant and scientists were thrilled, but unfortunately the infant died within a mere few hours. And then what happened over 17 days is that Talakot kept the body of her daughter on her own body. She refused to let it slip off into the ocean. And while this was happening, of course, we didn't know exactly what her motivation was. We didn't know when this would end. It ended after 17 days. But it became a kind of worldwide observation of a very complex and thoughtful animal doing something that wasn't random, that was meaningful. And my interpretation of this in context of all my other work is that she was grieving, that she felt. We know that orcas are incredibly intelligent, that they have cultures and that they think and they feel. And so there was no way that this female could not have realized that her daughter was dead. Just not possible. So this was a choice. She was expressing something by this now called a grief swim. And then I went on to talk about grief in a number of other animals. I do think that we have very strong scientific evidence now in how they express themselves in the wild by expressing symptoms of what we call grief. And I think we should recognize it as that in other animals. And do you think the other scientists process that information the way you did? I think that many, many scientists feel this way and a large number of people in the general public have gotten to really understand that many other animals think and feel, and that includes grief and love. In fact, of all the work that I've done over decades, the work on animal grief has, has resonated the most with people. And I think that's because, you know, if you live with dogs or cats or rabbits or horses or birds or, you know, whatever animal and there is a chance to observe them up close, intuitively you know that you're dealing with a fellow creature who has a heart and a mind, so that there's a great openness to thinking about these things. Although I will say, people, as I say in one of my books, really want apes and elephants and whales to be smart, but they don't want the food they eat to be so smart or to be able to feel. So there's a little bit of a resistance there. So I guess this is a perfect segue. Um, Where do you think that idea or the sort of human exceptionalism comes from? Yeah, well, first I want to say that the way that I define human exceptionalism is that we do think we're not only different, but superior when it comes to how our societies are organized, 
or our yeah. technology, our language, our culture, anything like that. Yeah. And is it, is it evolutionary and a scientific fact that we are unique because each species is unique, but exceptionalism takes it further to morph that uniqueness into being better or superior. And I think that distinction is one that I, I often try to, to talk with my students about because evolutionary theory compels us to understand each species is unique. Okay. So where does the sense come from that we're superior? And I do really want to say, again, that globally, it is not the case that everybody feels this way from, from people who are um, very in touch and in tune with the natural world uh, in modern cities to a large number of indigenous cultures have never felt that way. But I think it can come from perhaps two sources. There's a, a lot of that in, in religious texts, a lot of claiming that we are above other animals, that we have, you know, that biblical dominion over other animals so that we are the stewards of the world, but it kind of sets up this hierarchy of they're lower and we're higher. And scientific taxonomies have done the same thing. Yeah, I think there is less, like it doesn't end up sounding like someone's trying to win an argument here. It's more about the fact that you're starting a story and people will gradually go, you know, add their little bits to that story because we keep on hearing the story of, you know, human beings were put on this earth for smarter purposes as compared to animals. But the problem is that we just don't know enough. We are, we are pretty new in the science. It's really funny. I was researching and there was this documentary that talks about life after death. And it says, you know, we have believed for so long that human brain means consciousness, but there's so much more to consciousness that we don't even know about. And as far as human beings are concerned, and there's so many species of animals out there that we just don't know about. Yeah, I think you really put your finger on it because you were saying that not only do we not know the extent of the living animals on the earth, but we don't know very much about them. And so our claim of human exceptionalism is actually and ironically steeped in ignorance. And the more that we learn, I hope, the less that we will insist upon thinking of ourselves as so special and apart. But but the ability to do that is really predicated on the willingness to really ask those questions and to look. You know, I'm always telling people that when I write about animal love and grief or any other emotion, it comes from the ground up. It comes from what animals are telling us by their behaviors, their postures, their vocalizations, their actions. And I still think we need a lot more of that close observation. Because we interact so much with dogs and cats every day, we can kind of start gauging that grief and that similar human emotion in yeah. them. When I first arrived in, huh, I think it was. It was one of my two study sites in Africa. I was offered monkey to eat for lunch. And, you know, I was there to study primates. And I oh my God. very politely declined. The monkey on offer was a black and white colobus monkey, which is, you know, a beautiful monkey. And at this time, this was not just years ago, but decades ago, when I declined and I said, you know, I'm actually here to study these fascinating beings, they said to me, well, what would you like for lunch? And I said, a chicken. And now I would no more eat a chicken than, than anything. So in a way, I see, you know, my own personal evolution started out thinking, I don't want to eat a monkey. They're very much like us and being fine with eating a chicken. So, so when, when did that sort of distinction for you come into place? Because I know it takes a long time for a lot of people. Yeah, it took, it took me too long. Let me put it that way. But I would say that about 10 years ago, 
through a lot of reading and listening to vegan activists and listening to a number of other people, it just kind of the light, you know, went on. Of course, there's a lot of prejudice and discrimination because it's so easy for people in my country, in the United States to say, you know, folks in China eat dogs. And I want to throw my hands up and say, what did you have for lunch? What did you have for dinner? How was that animal processed? At the same time, I have to be careful about that because by no means am I perfect. You know, I am an imperfect eater. With humility about my own behavior, then I'm, I'm lost. And so the way that I speak when I do public speaking and the way that I write when I write books is to say, I'm on this journey. It's aspirational. I want to do better. I am doing better. But we're all kind of in this together at different stages. But I don't know that it's possible to eat and not do harm. At the end of all of it is that we're doing the least amount of harm in the end. Yes. Um, which is the only thing I guess you can go by. Pretty much just us existing on planet Earth is doing harm. Mm-hmm. Going from that point to I actually kind of wanted to get your definition of suffering as well, as what you describe suffering and whether it differs when it's in the context of human suffering as compared to animal suffering. Because I think that suffering is seen so differently and it's so different all around the world in developed countries versus developing countries. You know, how do you define that suffering that could be understood by everyone around the world? I think I would say that if you are constrained from experiencing true physical, psychological, and emotional well-being, then in some way you're suffering. So it's not one or the other, but a kind of comprehensive model. And I Mm -hmm. want to think about all of those things. So if I could just speak about other than human animals for a moment, I have come to think, for example, that it's a very impoverished view to look at animals in captivity, let's say in zoos or in the laboratory, and work on just pain reduction, just physical pain reduction. That's an aspect of suffering, but it is not Mm -hmm. all of suffering. So I have come around to the feeling that captivity itself is a harm, Mm -hmm. and captivity itself, no matter how nice the cage, big the cage, how much enrichment in the cage, is suffering. And so we could extend that to think about humans in any number of ways, perhaps incarceration or perhaps inability to live in fair, decent housing, any number of things that impact physical, psychological, and emotional well-being, I think needs to be seen as suffering. So I had this discussion with a good actor friend of mine who actually works part-time in a zoo, and she is obsessed with animals. She loves animals. And so I'm like, what? how do you feel about working in a zoo? And she said, well, I think it's the best thing that could happen to the animals. I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah, because we are protecting them. So I I just wanted to know your opinion on that. Well, it's complicated in the sense that, and I'm not suggesting this is what your friend means in any way, but some people have told me, you know, animals don't belong in zoos. They do so much better in the wild. Well, of Mm -hmm. course, we, our species, has so thoroughly screwed up the wild that in case, you know, we, we can't just say, This is a paradise for animals because most of the world is very much not. I mean, all we have to do is look at those very well-known photographs of orangutans sitting in the middle of uh, what are now palm plantations that used to be their forest and to see the fires and everything else. So it's not automatically the case that animals in the wild are going to have reduced suffering and greater well-being. At the Mm -hmm. same time, I'm completely convinced that most zoos exist, no matter what they say, 
for human entertainment. I don't think we need zoos for conservation necessarily. So what I'm saying is we have to really ask ourselves, what are we doing in keeping these animals in cages that they can't leave? We walk up to them, we look at them for 15 minutes and we can leave. And we never stop to think, in many cases, we don't stop to think, these animals can't leave. That's their life, 24-7. You know? yeah. And so I, I am not happy with the zoo system as it exists, as human entertainment. I think that there are ways where we can radically rethink zoos, and I spend quite a bit of time in my new book writing about But the bottom line for me is that the data shows for at least a large number of mammals and birds, captivity is harmful. What, what do you think is way forward in terms of endangered species, which are increasing every single day? Oh, that's a huge question. That's why I'm asking you huge questions, Barbara, because you can answer them. Oh, dear. We can't. Um, we, we, we are mere, mere models. We can't. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. Well, of course, I think we need to begin to think in more ecosystemic terms rather than, you know, saving the tigers, saving the pandas, saving the chimpanzees. Oh, thinking about large patches of land, putting the money that we now put into initiatives like zoos. I mean, you know, $45 million here for a gorilla habitat, $50 million here for an yes. elephant habitat. Now, yes. I, you know, these are perhaps small sums in the scheme of things, but they add up. So our priorities mm-hmm. need to be different. It is also the case that I should qualify my own statement because I said captivity is harmful, but sanctuaries are also captivity. And sanctuaries, mm-hmm. if they are good sanctuaries, and not all of them are, they are about the animal first. And that is a very different metric. It flips on its head what zoos mostly do. So I think... Animal co- first as compared to human first? Yeah. Animal because, first. Right. I mean, a zoo, you, you walk in there, you are, you're going to be entertained. You go to the cafe on the zoo grounds and you get, you know, cows and chickens on your plate, right? When you, after you just walk past the petting zoo, you go into the gift store and you buy plastic panda products. You know, there's no consistent messaging here about the environment and all of us suffering in that environment. So if we combine ecosystemic preservation with thinking about the conservation that needs to happen in a sanctuary setting, I think that's at least a reframing of our priorities that can be a starting place. Are you, I don't know if you're familiar with hunting? Well, first of all, there's no justification for trophy hunting. There is a question in my mind about if there ever is ethical hunting. And yeah, my thinking has evolved on this through talking to some people I respect a lot who are hunters. And I will say that I could never hunt. I never have and I won't. But there is the question of if there's a particular species that is highly, highly overpopulated, and in fact, there aren't enough resources to say, get the animals through a winter. If we insist that hunting is equivalent to suffering, are we actually overlooking that we're consigning some animals to even more suffering through a gradual death? And I think there's something to this question, but I also think The problem is that if the go-to solution there is hunting, then we're ethically failing. For example, not dismissing the suggestion of birth control methods. You know, there's a big debate about this. You know, a lot of people will just brush it off and say that's 
idealistic pie in the sky that could never happen. And yet, I'm not so sure because if the go-to solution is always lethal management, are we really working out through proper research what is possible? And are we really asking the hard questions? Well, look around at the natural world. Look at lions who kill gazelles and raptors who kill mice. And it is just part of the evolved natural world. So why shouldn't we hunt? And that question I think is based on what I would consider a misunderstanding of human evolution. Because in fact, we did eat meat as we evolved. That is an important part of our evolutionary history. But that meat allowed us to develop a pretty powerful brain. And if that brain is good for anything, it should be good for compassion and empathy and looking at how we deal with the world. There truly are people, of course, across the world who are subsistence hunters who need to hunt to feed their families. And I am not about to sit here and tell them what to do any more than I'm going to insist that the world has to go vegan right now. What do we do with millions of people who depend on chicken and fish for protein and hunting for protein? Well, it, exactly. That's the thing. Yeah, it's not up to me to tell them uh, what, what it is to be ethical. It's up to me to say we need a systemic rethinking of our food systems and that right now as a white person with a fair number of resources, I had better be doing my part because I can do my part. And as an anthropologist, yes. I am not going to be lecturing other societies across the world. This is not going to happen. Yeah. Well. I, I actually find I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble with this idea more and more because they feel like they have better resources now, that people who have resources can deal with it. But I think there needs to be a global effort. It should be a priority for third world countries as well to have education around protecting the environment because there's not enough being done. I think that my answer is not to say that I want to absolve anyone from ethical thinking and action, but rather that it is wrong to make pronouncements as if the burden should be equally shared when the problem has not been equally caused. This goes back to my my sort of love of reducitarian thinking, this idea that to the extent that every individual group and society can manage what we all need to do urgently, but at the same time working globally to ensure that we can all do that more and more. There's going to be a differential set of abilities and capacities according to what situation you find yourself in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the top three ways we can, it just means step by step. Here in the States, Brian Cateman, who has put together the Reducitarian Foundation and really popularized here that term. It's not a binary. It's not either or. Any motivation to eat less meat and dairy is good, whether it's your health, the climate crisis or animal suffering. We're on the same team. We're all in this together. And I like that message and I find that message powerful. At the same time, I would say we need to really push ourselves, try harder and harder. You know, and for me, I was eating, for example, until really fairly recently, I was eating salmon and I don't do that anymore. I changed to non-dairy milk. I've changed to non-dairy butter. I've changed to non-dairy ice cream. And this is to say that it is incremental. 
but that we can all challenge ourselves. Yeah, that's very true. And before we do forget, I actually really just want to talk about your book, your new one, that's Animal's Best Friend. The subtitle is important to me. It is compassion to work for animals in captivity and in the wild. And um, as we're talking now, we're three weeks from publication and I'm very, very excited about this book. It's my seventh book. So many of us in the world really grasp the fact that a huge variety of animals think and feel pretty profoundly. So the question is, okay, you know that. What are you going to do about it? How can we in our daily lives make things better for animals? Or as I say in my TED Talk, how can we be better and do better for animals? So in the book, it's very, very highly personal. I talk about, for example, surviving um, a really difficult cancer surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation treatment, and how that's made me think about animals in laboratories, how that's made me think about this idea that we're supposed to use animal models sort of first to solve health problems, which I no longer think is good science at all. We're surrounded by animals. We live with animals. Every day, there's something that we can do. I really think almost all of us. And I want to talk about how I have learned to get better, not perfect, but better at doing these things Mm -hmm. and why I want us all to keep having these hard conversations. Yeah, yeah. Well, watching this documentary, you should you should watch it if you have time. It's called uh, Surviving Death. And it's about people who kind of had a, a near-death experience where their heart stopped working. And it's so amazing when they came back to life, they changed completely. Yeah, it's funny how that happens. Uh, well, you see, I get that because, of course, I did not have that experience. But my experience was that I was in academia and I was fortunate to be teaching at a good college with very good students in an anthropology department. And about a year after this treatment ended, which was, you know, pretty hard, I said, I think I'm going to just do my writing and speaking full time. And a colleague asked me, oh, are you leaving because of cancer? Yes, but not the way you think. In other words, I, I don't have cancer. I am a very fortunate cancer survivor. But it made me think, what do I want to do with the, you know, the, re- the rest of my life? Yeah. And it's time to step up. You know, um, it's really powerful. I can't wait to actually read it. Thank you. And I have yeah. a number of online events that will be advertised on BarbaraJKing.com. They will all be listed there. Meanwhile, go to uh, YouTube, type in Grief and Love, Love in the Animal Kingdom. Thanks. Thank you so much for um, giving us your time. Thank you so much. Bye. <laughs> All right, bye. See you, bye. <laughs>